Welcome to this week's episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm your host, Rob Walling. On this show, we talk about building startups in an organic and sustainable fashion, in a way that allows you to build yourself a better life. Uh, I think that startups should provide you with freedom and purpose and uh, help you maintain healthy relationships. And that's what we talk about on Startups for the Rest of Us. That's why we call it For the Rest of Us. It's not the traditional Silicon Valley venture-backed startup path. We have several different formats for our shows. Sometimes we do a lot of tactics and we, we teach ideas and thoughts that we're thinking about. Sometimes we interview interesting founders. We answer a lot of listener questions. And one format that we've only done a handful of times, and it's been a few years since we have, is one called a founder hot seat. And the founder hot seat is where we bring a founder live on the show and we talk through an, an issue that they're thinking about or that they're facing in their, their business. And sometimes this is a marketing approach. It's something they're wondering whether they should do this approach or that, whether they should hire this person, this role, or whether they shouldn't and should just keep going uh, you know, on their way. And there tend to be no easy answers to these questions. And that's why we can spend 20, 30, 35 minutes talking through the pros and cons of it. And, you know, hopefully the founder leaves with, with food for thought and perhaps, uh, you know, an answer to, to what they're looking for. And hopefully you as a listener, just here's two smart people trying to talk through uh, an issue and troubleshoot it and, and think about the best way to proceed. I've long said that being a founder is more than 50% mental. It's just, it's managing your own psychology and much of this is about making decisions with incomplete information. So today is episode 450 of the podcast, and I'm doing a founder hot seat with Matt Wensing of SimSAS. We're going to be talking through how to make consistent needle-moving progress on your startup. So welcome to the show, Matt. Thanks, Rob. Great to be here. So Matt's the founder and former CEO of Risk Pulse. And Matt, this has the sexiest tagline I think I've ever heard for a startup, multi-factor prescriptive analytics for supply chain performance. Did you come up with that yourself? <laughs> I did not. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Some copywriter. No, because it totally describes exactly what it does. And anyone who knows that they need it, I bet is like, yes, have some. And someone like me, when I read it, I'm like, I don't, I'm not sure what that actually means. I'm gonna, you're going to qualify out. <laughs> yeah, no, that's exactly right, right? That's what you want in your subtitle, especially when you're, you know, when you're focused on, on such a tight niche. So you want to, in plain English, do you want to describe what, what Risk Pulse does? Yeah, so Risk Pulse really started out as a forecasting company focused on weather and really over the last five or six years developed expertise in how uh, trucks and trains and even ships uh, get products from manufacturing sites to market. So supply chain, broadly speaking, but transportation and logistics more specifically. And what we created right about the same time as data science and, and machine learning were coming in vogue in the enterprise space is a way for companies like Unilever, Anheuser-Busch, especially food and beverage, to essentially predict and decide much farther in advance than they used to be able to how and when they want to ship their products. So if you can imagine manufacturing Hellman's mayonnaise literally by the truckload and then asking yourself the question of what's the best way to ship this from Chicago to Los Angeles? That's what Risk Pulse helps those companies do now. And it's serving hundreds of companies like that and actually doing that kind of forecasting days in advance for millions of shipments per year. 
and it uses a lot of, um, does it use machine learning, artificial intelligence, whatever the, the buzzwords are these days? You were kind of doing it before it was in vogue, it sounded like. Yeah, we were doing it before it was in vogue and really didn't call it those things. We just called it forecasting and, you know, in some cases just bringing two things together. But yes, it does It does use machine learning and essentially think of it like if I go on Google Maps right now as a consumer and I'm about to actually have a pretty long road trip this summer. If I punched in right now, how long is it going to take me to get from here to Yellowstone National Park? You know, it'll give me a time to get there, but it's assuming that I never stop. Uh, it's also assuming that it doesn't really know what the traffic's going to be like a day from now, two days from now. What Risk Pulse does for those companies is it lets them put in, yeah, I'm shipping Chicago to Los Angeles next week. And it does try to look at all of the external factors like stops and traffic and weather and congestion and um, all of those things that are outside of people's control and give them a, a realistic estimate of when they're going to arrive. Love it. Yeah. And it's, you know, I love these, these vertical plays where I guess they're horizontal across industries, but I mean, it's this very tight niche of it's a successful SaaS app that employs, uh, how many folks work for, work there? Uh, 15 full-time. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a, it's a non-trivial, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a full-on company at this point. And you, you actually don't work there anymore. So you, you found a CEO to take over your duties. Is that right? I did. You know, I, I, I certainly had been thinking about, uh, as they call it, succession planning uh, and in a grandiose description, but um, had been thinking about that. You know, I have a family. Enterprise SaaS is pretty difficult lifestyle, and I had done it for five or six years at that point. And so I was looking for a really a sales leader. Ended up being introduced to a very experienced enterprise sales executive who also had built and scaled companies from kind of the 10 to 50 headcount range. So very much the same gear that we were about to hit. And uh, he worked as chief strategy officer with me for almost a year and a half. And then I realized, you know, this would make a really great opportunity to transition. Told the board, the board was happy that, you know, I had come to that conclusion on my own. And uh, really there was no, there was no pressure or reason for them to tell me to do anything other than me just saying, you know what, from a lifestyle standpoint, I think this would be best. And frankly, for the business, I, I really think of myself in all the businesses that I've been a part of as an owner first, as a shareholder first, and not as a, well, I'm the CEO or I'm the CTO or, you know, whatever the role is. It's, you know, that's not really, that's not actually what's going to make you rich and successful or whatever your goals are. It's, it's making sure the right people are in the right places. So as a shareholder, I just thought to myself, wow, I could have this person take over the CEO role. I can take more of a, a side uh, car seat, um, which is what I did for about six months and then ultimately transitioned out to really board member and advisor at this point. Right. Yeah. It's, I mean, and that's a mature viewpoint that I think a lot of founders don't necessarily have naturally. So it's, you know, it's nice that you are able to, to think about it in that respect and to realize that if your lifestyle goals weren't, be, you know, meeting up with your company, that there's, I've said on the podcast in the past, it's like we, we start our own company so that we can be in control of that, you know, and so that we can help ensure that we are enjoying what we do on a long-term basis. So it's cool that you were able to transition away from that. And, and you started your, your next effort, which is a SaaS app called Sim SaaS. And that's really what we're here to, you know, talk about today. And you and I have gotten to know each other because you're part of the tiny seed batch, the first uh, tiny seed batch. Something that, that really attracted us to what you were doing is 
the fact that you're a repeat founder, that you've had success already, that you are a developer, so you can build your own software early on, you're good at product, you are really good at partnerships, apparently, which is what I'm discovering recently, your business development skills, your sales skills, and even like copy and positioning, you're like that that triple or, or quadruple threat. And that's what attracted us to, to SimSass. SimSass, for those who don't know, again, I just pulled the, your, ta- your tagline off your site, but your headline says, great teams forecast early and often, upgrade your gut feelings to forward-looking metrics. And that is for folks running SaaS apps. Yeah, that's right. Um, SimSass is an app that's built for uh, SaaS founders. And what's really helping them do is take a forward-looking view of their business you know, obviously, there are a lot of tools that are available, ProfitWell, ChartMogul, BearMetrics, et cetera. Um, a lot of people just use Google Sheets to tally up you know, their Stripe account data and figure out what their current MRR and ARPU and LTV and all those uh, metrics are. What SimSAS does is it takes those historical metrics, also puts them into a simulator, and then uh, generates a forward-looking trend of what all those numbers are going to be in the future. And so I... I built it originally as a just a Python script uh, prototype a couple years ago while I was running Risk Pulse because I had investors asking me questions that were pretty difficult to answer just using Excel. Things like, you know, well, I, I see your MRR now and I see what your pipeline is, but you know, what if your sales cycles get longer? Or what if your receivables don't come in when you think they're going to come in? And you know, what if your pricing goes down? What if it goes up? How does your business look then? And those are very fair questions when you're going out to raise money, especially, um, or even when you're making decisions like hiring. And it was very difficult to answer those just going back to Excel and saying, okay, I'm going to delay our revenue by three months because our sales cycles are longer. It's like, well, it doesn't really just work that way. It's, it's a lot more complicated. And so everything's connected, we all know, and all these interdependencies in your business, it's just very complex. And I realized that, you know, this is something where software could actually help us if I could just punch in you know, six months instead of three months on my sales cycles and have it auto-generate a new forecast, that would be really handy. So uh, that's what it does. And um, it's it's connected to those data sets that founders have. So if you have a bare metrics account, for example, uh, you can connect that in and it gives you a fresh and live forecast for all of your metrics as often as you need it. Very cool. So it sounds like you've taken the machine learning AI stuff that you did and predictive analytics with Risk Pulse and applied it to SaaS metrics. Is that a reasonable summary? That is a reasonable summary. I have a friend of mine that's that's uh, at Risk Pulse teases me that uh, I'm kind of a one-trick pony in the sense <laughs> of, of saying, you know, you take things and you forecast and uh, you, you rinse, wash, and repeat. But it was amazing to me when I went out there and looked at the landscape and I looked at the forecasting components, you know, because each of those tools that I mentioned does have some forecasting component to it, but they're all really simple, linear extrapolations, you know, of... of where you're going to be next month based on this month. And I was kind of surprised that there was nothing more sophisticated than that. And just as a quick aside, you know, my background, pretty deep involvement with weather forecasting. And I was actually gave a lightning talk at Business of Software last year. And one of the examples I used was of, you know, hurricane forecasting. And there is a forecast that says if the hurricane keeps moving, you know, exactly this much north and exactly this much west each day, you know, this is where it'll be. But we all know now based on physics that, you know, the real world doesn't work that way. And I think SaaS companies also don't work that way. There's all kinds of chaos and complexities and sudden changes that is why so oftentimes our forecasts end up being wrong. 
which is really frustrating for founders. So uh, that's that's what I'm addressing. And, and you're right, I, I took a lot of my domain expertise and was able to apply it here. Yeah, very cool. And today, you know, you and I were, were talking in the Tiny Seeds Slack and I was asking, you know, are you interested in coming on the show? Is there anything you're, you're kind of struggling with or really thinking about top of mind that we could, you know, try to think through to give you some clarity? And, and it, you know, in your message, you said, one thing I could talk about with some real conviction is how to develop a strong cadence of work as a company of one person, managing the huge amount of context switching required to make consistent and needle-moving progress on every front over a 12-month period. In other words, the length of the Tiny Seed Accelerator. How can I find that groove and sustain it? And I, I like I liked a couple phrases in there. Consistent needle-moving progress. I think is a is a I think that's a powerful kind of statement. And then on every front, because we know there's there's product and there's marketing and there's sales and there's support and there's all these things over a 12-month period, which is an extended period of time. So you want to talk a little more about that? I mean, that was your, your summary of it, but what, what are you, what are you thinking about? Going back to what you said earlier, which uh, very flattered uh, that I, that I am capable of making some progress on a lot of different areas, whether it's business development or marketing or, or coding. The double-edged sword of that is that you can end up feeling like you are, you know, am I supposed to just take it as it comes? Meaning, okay, this this week, these are the urgent and important things. Clearly, that's the most important box to focus on, and I'm just going to, you know, tackle one item from each of those categories of work each week. Or do I? Well, what I'd like to do, I'm leading myself into this, but what I, what I'd love to discover is, you know, what I'm going to treat weeks or two weeks or months as my unit of work, and, and I hesitate to say sprint, but if, if we want to think of it that way, we can. And I'm going to be a little bit more disciplined about not just my daily routine, but maybe even a week over week routine, or maybe even within a month, you know, that I set aside a week to work on product that's meeting free because I can, I have that, I have that luxury, right? And, and if I have a week where I know I'm going to have a bunch of meetings anyway, you know, that's my week to do sales and, and business development or partnerships. And so I kind of thinking that I don't want to, you know, it's a, it's an awesome opportunity to have a year of runway to work on your startup. Thanks to the, to the tiny C program, just thinking about as a company of one, especially, you know, I can't parallelize very well. Um, I, I, there's only one of me. So how do I sort of acknowledge my own natural rhythms, my own lifestyle, but then also just kind of the nature of each of these kinds of work and start trying some structures that could help me, you know, maybe on a, on a one month view. Yeah, no, and I, I think that's, I think that's important, and I like that you're asking the question of yourself. Of yourself, it shows you have like insight into how you work. I think each of us, obviously, each of us has strengths and weaknesses, and until you identify those strengths, especially when you're a company of one, I, I think that you're at a you're at a disadvantage until you know yourself pretty well, until you know yourself as someone who either is that I'd say the more impulsive context switching founder who likes to bounce around and get get a lot work on a lot of things all at once and i've worked with with founders who who do that i've i've worked with founders who tend to focus too hard on one thing and get stuck on it and whether it's uh, mental perseveration or whether it's i'm going to work on this email or i'm going to work on this code until it's done and then like 12 hours later they're done and they're like oh that was the whole work day you know and they and they got stuck on it you strike me more as someone who moves around a lot and works on a lot of different things as they come up. Is that, you, th- you think that's an accurate assessment? I think that is. I think that's my natural, probably what's natural for me. 
you know, it, it, people that know me from the tiny seed context are probably, <laughs> I'm in the Slack a lot, you know, asking questions. I'm just naturally a very curious person and I get a lot of enjoyment out of just knowledge, you know, not knowledge and sometimes for knowledge sake, sometimes I just want to store it away and say, hmm, you know, that might come in handy later. Um, so I do have a, a habit. I was about to qualify it as a bad habit, <laughs> but I'll just call it a habit for now. You know, a natural habit to want to bounce around, look at a lot of things, have a lot of tabs open. At the same time, I've got to, I've got to write real code. You know, I've also got to think deeply about copy. I, I think one thing that's caused me to think about this more is just the deep work, as I say, mantra, but that theme that's come up quite a bit lately in the circles that, that you know, I listen to podcast-wise, et cetera, where it was hard to actually get deep work done in a company of 15 people that was all on Slack at Risk Pulse sometimes. And, and now I kind of have this luxury of saying, okay, how would I, how would I do it differently, you know, knowing, knowing what I know now? And how can I get myself into those grooves um, without ignoring anything that might catch on fire? Yeah. Yeah, totally. And that's, see, I think, I think you have, you have the luxury right now of not only being a team of one, but you are still early enough that, you know, you don't have a thousand customers all asking for things, right? Things aren't on fire per se. And I think, I think there's a couple things that come to mind right away. As much as I like Slack for the community, and I'm only in, I'm in maybe two or three Slack groups, you know, including the, the tiny seed one that you and I are in together. But I, I do not disturb Slack multiple times during the day, kind of almost premeditated, you know, like my, I know that my best times of day to work tend to be in the morning until about 11 or 1130. Then I get really hungry because I, I don't, I don't tend to eat breakfast. So then I eat and then I get a little sleepy. So then I'll, I will tend to do Slack in the early afternoon and then I get this like second wind. So I either do not disturb Slack or I, I use email a lot more than I think some other people do these days, you know, because Slack has given us that. It gives us the, the instant communication and feedback. I think you could certainly have a team. I mean, we had a team of 10 at Drip with Slack and it wasn't super noisy because we only used it for things that needed real time. And if you didn't need real time, as new people would start, I would tell them, hey, we, we value maker time. Like that's a big thing. We're a software company what were we, four engineers, three or four engineers out of, you know, this, this full-time team of eight. And then we had a couple contractors. And so we were engineer heavy because the product was such a focus. And, and the way I communicated it was like, look, if you need to interrupt a developer, that's fine. If you need to interrupt someone, that's okay. But if you don't need to, if you don't need an answer within 20 or 30 minutes, send an email. You know, that was like an intro thing. And that was the culture that, that I had set up at the company. How does that resonate with you? Does that seem crazy or does that seem like something that, that would be, you know, interesting? Definitely interesting. I, I, I probably overestimate, I'm probably bad at judging whether or not things need to be real time just because of some of those, those habits of, you know, we signed up for hip chat first before Slack was a thing at wrist pulse. And it was basically pretty noisy and pretty engaged. And, and so we, as a company culturally had to try to enforce those maker times. And, and now it, it's sort of, I'm self-managing. So that, that makes sense. Um, I, I mean, one crazy admission here is I don't think I've, <laughs> I don't think I've ever used do not disturb on Slack. I, I think I probably just, igno- I'm probably just a bad citizen <laughs> where I'm ignoring people's messages and they're wondering, you've got the green dot, but certainly that, you know, that's a great, that's a great little tip. And one thing I wanted to jump off of as well is I, 
have a similar kind of natural rhythm uh, in terms of my work. I, so I am a very early riser. It's been tough this summer since the kids are out of school, like everyone's staying up late. But typically I get up, alarm goes off at like 4.45, 4.55 a.m. And I am like at my desk with a cup of coffee after drinking some water by, by 5, 5.15. Um, and I, I have found that my my coding abilities and my you know deep analytical work abilities are really, you know, that five to 10 a.m. period, um, which is five hours. It sounds like, you know, not much of a work day, but that is one thing I've noticed too. So um, I could probably do myself a favor and hide from Slack <laughs> during those times. Yeah, I mean, I could see that. So A, five hours of straight work, that sounds like a tremendous amount of time. I mean, think of the, you know, of all the, the people working at, at startups or companies for that matter that are running Slack and how often developers get interrupted to have four or five hours of uninterrupted focus time. Uh, to me, you can get two days of development done in that, you know, I mean, yeah. two days compared to just being part of a 20 person development team where just stuff's flying all over the place every, you know, every minute and you're getting interrupted. So I think that's, that's plenty of time to get almost a full day's worth of deep work done from five to 10. If I were in your shoes, I would, I mean, the fact that you're online at five is awesome, right? I, so I'm the, I would say I'm the opposite. I am, I wake up later and I'm tired when I wake up and I, you know, I'm groggy for 30, 40 minutes. So I'm typically at my computer by nine if I'm lucky. And so, yeah, this, this isn't about my habits, but it's definitely not. I think you have a distinct advantage is what I'm saying. Like one of the things I was going to talk about or wanted to bring up is when you're a single person company or a very small team, it, I mentioned it earlier, but it's like it's so important to know your strengths and to know your weaknesses. And one of your strengths is deep work, it sounds like, or, or being able to write your own code, I think is a big deal. And another one is that you're online at five in the morning. That is a strength, whether you realize it or not, because I couldn't do that. I would be trucked. I would get no work done. I would be worthless. You know, I'd just be too tired. So obviously I think when you're this small, it's like you, you got to focus on strengths and you need to really forget your weaknesses or work around them, you know, and ultimately you can hire people to, to take over those, you know, or to cover those areas. You know, again, to come back to me, like I, I don't enjoy doing demos. I don't enjoy sales, like enterprise sales and all that stuff. It just, it doesn't resonate with me or my personality, but it does with you. So I would say the fact that you're a developer who knows how to do sales and how to do these kind of these partnerships is another big, big strength and something that, that you can leverage over the course of this year. Yeah. Two thoughts came to mind. One is, um, so M Mikey Trafton, for those of you who don't know, he's um, he's one of the founders of Capital Factor here in Austin, and he's a frequent speaker at Business of Software that that I've gotten to know fairly well. And he he has these categories of uh, categories of work or strengths, and he talks about how you have a superpower that is something that you you're insanely good at, and it's for you it's kind of effortless. And then there's this category of things that everyone has where they are really good at them, but they find it draining, and you do it and everybody else looks at you and says, wow, you're really good at that. But at the end of the day, or if you do a lot of that, or right after you do that, you're just kind of exhausted or maybe just worn down. For me, interestingly enough, I, I do find that the deep work is that the coding, the design, some the, the things I do in isolation are the first kind. They're, they're the things that I really feel energized afterwards. Enterprise sales, although I've done it and I, I've closed you know six-figure deals consistently in the past, they are really draining, I find. You know, the demos, I, I can totally relate to that. And so it's, it's kind of funny. It's like one of those things where, yes, I can do it, but I do find it to be difficult and, and 
I've learned in the past that one thing I can't do is I can't, you know, do one of those and then get into any kind of deep work. Like I, <laughs> after I do that, I'm just kind of, I'm, I'm ready to be done. Mm. And that's, that's really good to know, right? So all your demos should be after 10 or 11 in the morning. I mean, that's, and that's something so good to know about your, your daily cadence, you know, cause that, that's what we're talking about here, right? Is, is like to bring it back. How do you make consistent needle moving progress on your business? Yeah. And it's showing up every day and having a schedule that is as ideal for you as possible. And, you know, I feel like if you could not check email, this is very hard to do, but if you could not check email or Slack before you start your 5 a.m. sprint, you know, in essence, your five-hour sprint or four-hour sprint, I've never been able to do that, I will admit. I always check email first thing in the morning, always have. I don't know that I will break that habit. I think in a perfect world, you wouldn't have the distraction, but sometimes you just need to feel, I need to feel okay that like nothing's on fire or if there's someone needs a quick answer that I, you know, if they're relying on me that I get it out to them quickly. But sometimes of course it takes, takes you off track, you know, and you wind up doing 15, 20 minutes of email instead of your deep work. And that's kind of the sacrifice that I've, you know, you have to make if you do that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I'm the same way. I'll, I'll check it first, but uh, I have an incredible ability to, unless it's actually on fire to just kind of ignore it and wait. Uh, but, but then I get that closure that no, everything's good. Yeah. I think what I would say next is if, if we can, zooming up one level or, or going up one level and looking at, you know, a week or a month and asking, you know, I've got in the program, let's say 10 months, you know, remaining, not that anything magical necessarily happens to that line. Um, we're not working towards a demo day per se, but if those are actually my units now, so a daily routine sounds pretty solid. How do you think about juggling or moving between marketing, sales, product development, design. And, and I can kind of think of one example, you know, you really shouldn't be building things before you design them. <laughs> so, you know, jumping in and writing a bunch of code might not be the best thing to do. So if you, if you look at a week or even a month context, what does that look like? Yeah. How do we think through that? I think it's fascinating because so many founders at your stage don't even think about that. And I feel like it's the fact that you have already grown a company you know, to the level of risk pulse that that leads you to to think about the longer time frame. Because I do think it's, I think I honestly think it's less important in these early early days, but it will quickly become more important, right? As you get even a couple months down, because right now you could literally think just a couple days out or a week out tops and be like, what what are my goals this week? It's to ship this feature and to get you know another customer or another five customers or whatever the number is. But you're gonna hit a point in the next you know, 12 months where, where you do have to start thinking just a little further out. First you think two weeks out and then you think four weeks out. And then of course, when you get, as you get bigger, you have to think two months out because you have all these people working on things, right? And they need to know where they're going. And when you have 15, 20 people, you just have to start, your horizon has to go out further. So at your stage, I, I don't know if I would, I don't know how much I would time I would spend thinking about a month out because that really does feel like a long time given how quickly things are changing right now. I feel like there's there's all these fronts you can be fighting on, you know, or all these fronts you can be switching to and from. There's there's development and there's design, as you said. There's sales, there's marketing, there's kind of internal operations, there's processes, there's all this stuff. I feel like right now, just moving the product forward and doing sales and or business development. I almost kind of count that as as sales, but I guess technically it's it's more marketing, right? Because it's generating leads that then you would you would sell. Almost all the other fronts can can go by the wayside 
for the next few months, which is hard to do, but that's how I like would mentally prioritize them right now. Because if you're not building features or getting new people using the product, everything else is substantially less important. Does it feel that way? It does. If I look back the last few months, the way that I started SimSass is I really did a soft launch, you know, the new classic soft launch on Twitter of sharing it with, with all my followers. And it got, you know, good amount of interest. What I ended up doing was having this kind of open season where anybody could sign up and I learned a lot. And then I essentially shut it back down into a, a private beta where now I have a handful of folks that I really care what their experience is. They're definitely my target market and I'm trying to get them signed up, willingness to pay. That's, that's the focus. The lead gen part is kind of just doing its own thing right now. And people are putting their email address, um, saying I'm interested in early access, I'm sometimes filling out a survey. That feels really good to just be automated. And, you know, I don't know if those folks are going to get bored waiting around for me to get back to them. But yeah, I agree for the next few months, I should just be focusing on a bottoms up acquisition and happiness of these handful of people. If I do put my second time founder hat back on though, I, I am, I do have an end in view, which is by the end of, by the end of the third quarter of this year, which is I think in quarters because I come from the enterprise space, but you know, by the end of September, I do want to launch self-service and I'm not self-service now. So I do think about what do I need to do to get to that point and that is an interesting blend of product and sales. Yeah, for sure. And I I think to touch on Sim SaaS specifically, you're in a unique position where you just have incoming interest. And you're in a unique position that fairly unique where you don't have to do a bunch of marketing right now. Because typically the, the advice that I would give right now is, well, you have to be focused on marketing and product, right? Those would be the two. The level of inbound interest you have and, and how quickly it spreads because it is this insulated, you know, this insular SaaS community. It's like we all talk to one another and you appear on one podcast and then everybody has heard of you and then you, you apply so well to, to so many of these companies that I do think, I mean, that's what, you know, I was specifically saying it's product because you're trying to get push more features to keep the, the customers you have happy and it's sales to land your incoming pro, you know, your inbound prospects as, as folks who are going to use it. But marketing for now is taking care of itself. And you obviously hit a point where you, that changes, but I wouldn't be thinking out that far right now because I think that's six to 12 months out. And I think by the time you get there, you will be at such a different place product wise and revenue wise that you can either decide if you want to go attack marketing, you do it. If you want to hire it out, you'll do it because you'll have the budget. But that's something that as you get closer, I think you're going to know. I don't think you need to be preparing for that yet because it's just, it's a ways out. I even think what, what month it's June and you want self-serve by September, which is three-ish, three and a half months out. I mean, I, I would ask two questions about that. One, why do you want to go self-serve by then? And two, what level of planning does that take? Or could you, I mean, given the fact that you write all the code and, and do the design, could you hammer that out literally the last two weeks of September if that's still the right decision when you get there? It's like just-in-time decision-making, you know? And, and I, it sounds a little flippant if you've, again, if, if you've worked at a 60-person company, it's like, well, you can't possibly make a decision that close to the wire because you got to get product marketing on board and you got to get documented. You don't need to do any of that. It's one, you know, there's one person. So I would almost push that 
absolute decision off until the last moment where it's like, yes, now that's what I have to do, you know, and, and now I'm going to build this, but tell me, tell me if that, if that resonates or if that sounds like, nope, I think that's a bad, I think that's a bad call and here's why. Now, this is interesting. So I, I have used SimSAS to forecast SimSAS. <laughs> and, nice. um, and yeah, you know, self-service, what is it? It's a, it's, it's a way to get more because I'm going to go with um, trials, uh, trials with credit cards. And if you think about it, self-service is really just a way to remove, uh, I won't say all the friction because I, I, I'd love to think it'll be 0% friction, but it will remove me as a gatekeeper for people to get on board Interestingly enough, do I do I need it by then, or is that just kind of artificial? That's that's a great question. Or am I imposing that on myself because I think I need it? I mean, one thing that is interesting, I'll I'll say, is that out of the early adopters I already have, there is a fair amount of investors or mentors or even just experienced founders who are already referring other folks to it. And so, lead volume again back to marketing is not a problem. Do I need to undo myself as a gatekeeper? Maybe what I should be thinking is also taking a bottom up approach to that and saying, I am onboarding folks manually right now. Every time I do that, just get more efficient at it somehow, right? And let my own sort of irritation with having to do things manually drive me to make it ultimately self-service. But like, it doesn't have to be necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. I think given the, that, you know, there are a number of products now, like superhuman is the example everybody brings up, but there, there are many products that stay invite only for a very long time. And some do it intentionally for the scarcity, but others don't. And I think as a single founder, you have a pretty good almost excuse or reason to, as long as you're not losing, you know, as long as you're not finding that, boy, these leads are waiting so long that they're, they're degrading, you know, and they're not, then not converting because they've been sitting in the queue for too long. Yeah. I think setting an, an arbitrary date for it that's three and a half months out might be premature. And if you get to the point where it's like, no, this is just too much volume and you need to automate it, then then you can always, you could do it earlier, you could do it later. But I don't feel so strongly about have, having to have it done by the end of, of September. I think something I was thinking about it as you were talking about that, about how the onboarding is somewhat manual. I love the idea of trying to automate a little more each time also hiring a customer success person like if it literally is just light sales like it's inbound warm leads who who kind of need you to walk them through the product a little bit give them a little bit of a demo show them how to use it get them set up like that's a customer success role and that is not that hard to fill and it's not that expensive either so is that you know could that be something that's a better option even if it's a part-time person you get them 10 or 20 hours a week starting in a month from now does that shape how things happen? Because now you have someone who's on, you know, on your team learning the product and you're not in as much of a hurry now to do self-service, especially if those leads, especially if they're converting, right? Yeah, that, that's interesting. I think there is, there's an open question of how zero touch any of this stuff can be these days. I mean, I know there, there's blog posts now that say any amount of human touch sales involvement lifts your ACVs, you know, lifts your retention. Like it's just a good thing and people want to have a relationship with your company and that would feed that. Um, and, and I've been there. So that's the playbook I've run before. I think the other one, which is the company of one, maybe let's say to a fault, but even more strict is, no, that's all got to be automated in product. And uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know if that's actually, I don't know which one's the right approach. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you, I think which one feel, which one do you want to do? Which one do you want to do? Because it's like the right approach, given that you're building a company for you 
you know, I mean, I, and you want to grow and stuff, but I, that's going to come like, you, you know, you, you have an opportunity here. Does bringing a customer success person on feel like, nah, I, that isn't something that I'm that interested in. I've already run that playbook and I really do want to try to make, give, give it a first crack at spending, you know, time and getting onboarding up and making it truly self-serve. Is that more, is that more interesting to you? Cause that certainly could be your first crack at bat. And then if it isn't working out the way you want, you can always backfill it. Yeah, I, I, th- I think that is. Honestly, it's probably the more, to me, it feels like the more ambitious one. I, I don't know that I would say it's the right one, though. Um, I, I do have my doubts as to whether or not that's really the right way to do it. I mean, especially when you're dealing with a financial app and it's pretty complex, you know, having a human there um, to set you up and to take you through that, I mean, that's that's a pretty well-worn path and, and we know it works. So uh, maybe that is what I do is I push it as far as I can and then and then see if I basically hit a wall where, no, there's that five more percent, but then I can scope that down to exactly what I need. Right. Yeah, that's what I was thinking because, you know, in the early days of Drip, I really wanted everything to be self-service. And that's just a lot of the apps I had, pretty much all the apps I had before that were were almost all self-service. And we built out a lot of onboarding and it worked well and we had good growth, but I definitely found that people who were willing to pay us more money, the, the several hundred dollars a month clients, which obviously isn't even that big, they really wanted to talk to somebody. And that was where I eventually got to a breaking point because I was doing demos and talking with them. And as I said, I don't enjoy it, you know, much like, much like you, I'm, I'm good at it, but I, it wasn't a thing that gave me life. And, and we eventually, you know, did hire someone and it was, it was the right decision but I had to give it a shot as the self-service first because we wanted to see if, if we could you know, truly make that work. And it, again, it did work. It's just the larger customers benefited a lot more from, you know, from having that, that high touch. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that, that may be the reality. I, and I could see self-service, it does work for so many apps and instances where maybe the product's a little bit more, product category especially. I mean, I think that's, that's actually something I keep, coming back to, and that might be just the reality is that this is a kind of a new product, let's say category, metrics is, is a category, but the idea that you're connecting all this data and you're doing this forecasting, not having a human at all to explain what this is, how it works and when to use it, it might not be realistic. And it actually might create some glue and loyalty to to have that involvement anyway, which is, which is what I'm providing right now. So I think yeah, this is good kind of rescoping of where I want to be by the uh, end of September. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's good. And it's good to have goals. I mean, you know, I know you're driven and trying to, you're thinking out a few months because you're thinking where you want to be and you don't want to stand still. You know, a lot of, some folks are super goal oriented and motivated. And then for others, it, it, I think it demotivates them. And, you know, it sounds like you have, you want to know where you're, where the puck is going and, and where you're headed. I just at your stage, man, I feel like dates are, might not be helpful, you know, unless it really, unless it really is motivating to you. I guess for me, I should probably state that differently. For me, when, when I'm that early in an app or that early in a company's development dates, there's, there were too many variables for me to possibly like throw a date out of when something should happen. Yeah. Yeah. And and there's kind of two ways to get to that date. Either, either change the definition of success, you know, or you move the date and, and, you know, you can time box things. And I, I probably am more of the, I'll change the definition of self-service, not, not to the point of cheating, <laughs> but I'll change it to mean, you know, they can self-service, but that's not what I want them to do. Or I, maybe there's a way around that. But yeah, I think I am pretty driven from the standpoint of reverse engineering, kind of where I want to be. I think that, 
you're right. It's like I'm trying to connect lightning from two sides here, and it, it, it's uh, bottoms up is probably. I mean, that's where I'm at. So I think that does create creates a mental frame for me to just go, okay, it's bottoms up, bottoms up. It's the people I'm working with right now. You know, so I knew last week was going to be a sales and marketing heavy week. Scheduled a lot of meetings for that, and essentially knew that I wasn't going to get a lot of deep work done. But I kept the slate clear for this week. You know, knowing that I needed to shift gears. So I think that's the other skill I want to develop is just getting myself in a mode and being able to say no to things that are going to knock me off. Yeah, that's, I was going to bring that up. I, it, maybe as a last point of conversation, because we're running long on time, but I was going to, I was coming back to cadence, you know, which I believe you mentioned, or at least when, you know, in your Slack, I was thinking cadence, cadence. And I was going to ask, you know, do you do better with a one day on, one day off cadence, or would a one week on, one week off cadence work, you know, and it sounds like that's, that's what you tried recently is kind of like the BD sales week, and then a development week, because I feel like most of us tend to bounce around, right, and handle whatever is the next thing that we think is most important. But if you truly do, if you are able to say no, whether it's just for that one work day of like, I'm going to say no to everything that is not pushing the product forward in some form or fashion. And then the next day, you know, I'm going to push it, say no to everything that's not pushing the sales, like revenue forward in some form or fashion. And whether that's one day or one week, I think that most of us are helped, are helped by that. I'm surprised that you did it for a whole week, or I'm impressed, I should say, that you were able to do that for a whole week. Because that would be hard for me to do. Do you feel like that was successful and that's like something you want to continue to do? Or was it like, well, it was too long and I should probably only do three-day you know, sprints, so to speak? Yeah, I, th- I think it will shorten probably naturally to you know, three or four days of a week that's focused on something. And then you've got your, you know, your bonus day to catch all the stuff where somebody just says, look, I can't meet with you the next week. But yeah, I think I'd like to keep trying that. Um, that'd be a good way to kind of follow up here and, and see. So this is a product development week for me. Uh, that I'm going on vacation, and that'll naturally lend itself to maybe just checking email and and following up on sales related things, and then we'll have to see kind of which which mode I fall into when I get back, or maybe I shouldn't fall into one. I should I should uh, pick one. <laughs> yep, yep. No, that's right. You know, you you sent me a tweet from James Clear, and many people may know James Clear as a, he's an author and a blogger about um, kind of forming good habits and motivation and stuff. And his tweet said, most people need consistency more than they need intensity. And then he says, intensity is running a marathon, writing a book in 30 days, or a silent meditation retreat. Consistency is not missing a workout for two years, writing every week, or daily silence. Intensity makes a good story. Consistency makes progress. And... I really like that tweet, and I'm glad you sent it over. It reminds me of a quote that I've, I've used over and over. I've written a blog post on it. There's an episode of this podcast titled this, but it's a quote from Steve Martin, and he wrote it in his uh, his autobiography. And the quote is, it's easy to be great. It's hard to be consistent. And he's a stand-up comedian, and he said he would come to shows, and he would watch a comedian just kill it one night, just blow the doors off. But that comedian couldn't do it every night. And that was the challenge. He said, it is easy to be great once in a while. And that's what James Clear is talking about with intensity. It's easy to be great, but how do you show up every day? You know, how do you, how do you not have this splashy tech crunch launch or this big one-time uh, hit where it's not a sustainable thing? I mean, we see it a lot in the startup space. We see it in pop culture where things come and go quickly in this blaze of glory that's not what we're here to build. You know, we're here to build these, these longer term, 
these sustainable, these five-year, 10-year, 20-year companies. And whether we run them for 20 years or not doesn't matter, but is this something that that can be around for the long term? And you know, I believe that the way that happens is with what we're talking about today. It's this consistent needle-moving progress that you show up every day or you show up every week for years. And it's that's the thing that most people have the hardest time doing. So yeah, I hope this conversation was... I think it was helpful for me. I hope it was helpful for your, you know, you as a listener. And uh, thanks so much, Matt, for agreeing to come on the show. Thanks a lot, Rob. And again, if you want to catch up with what Matt is doing, you can head to simsass.co. If you have a question for the podcast, call our voicemail number at 888-801-9690 or email us at questions at startupsfortherestofus.com. We're in iTunes and all the other places you would imagine. Just search for startups and we'll have a full transcript of this episode on our website, startupsfortherestofus.com. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.